1: Sangram here. I'm the host of the Flip Maffler podcast. And as always, every Tuesday and sometimes even on Thursday, we actually have somebody come and do a takeover, which honestly gives me more time to do what I need to do in my life, but it also creates great content on the podcast. So this time, a good friend of mine, really, really a good friend of mine, Ted Wynn, he has a passion for the heroes in healthcare business. And we all know how the healthcare business has been impacted over the last years, and he he started a podcast right in the middle of it. So, Ted, tell us what this podcast series is all about. That and who do you interview in that?
2: Sure. Well, thanks, Andrew. First and second, thanks for having me here. Yeah, you know, our tagline is dedicated to highlighting bold, selfless professionals in the healthcare industry who are focusing on transforming lives in their communities. And we just thought with the COVID back COVID. Um, pandemic that we're all living through and still continuing to go through, that these people and their stories just wasn't, wasn't being told or needed to be highlighted more. And so we just took it on as a, a bit of a passion project and said, let's start talking about these people and what they're doing. And uh, as a result, it's taken off. We have uh, we are just finished episode 10. Ah, and congrats. Uh, thanks. And we have, uh, last numbers I checked, were about 1,700 downloads
1: already. That is awesome. So the podcast is called Heroes of Healthcare. Yep. Heroes and Healthcare. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, we are going to have links to your podcast here. So if people want to continue listening to it after, even after the series is done, they can go check it out. We'll obviously write a blog and all those things. Share some of the people you're interviewing so we get a taste of it.
2: Yeah. So- yeah. And they can, they can listen on the heroes of healthcare podcast.com website. So We have a whole website with the episodes posted there, Spotify, Apple, all the regular places as well. But yeah, we've been really fortunate. Um, we have uh, uh, Dr. Mark Knapp. He was a chief marketing, uh, excuse me, chief medical officer for Mount Sinai in New York city who gave us a whole impact of how New York city responded to the pandemic and, and the stress on the people. We had the chief, Medical Officer for Navant, Massive Healthcare System in the North Carolina and the Southeastern Market, talking all about vaccine safety of mRNA and the vaccine that's been coming out. And then we like to mix it up a little bit. We had an old time friend of mine, Jack Curry, who is the voice of the New York Yankees, come on and talk all about baseball and how baseball was dealing with the COVID pandemic, but also how baseball was giving us some normalcy in our lives. Yeah. Because one of the things we also want to focus on is not just the physicality of, of the of the healthcare system, but also mental health. So we've also had um, the chief wellness officer from another major healthcare system talking about physician burnout, dealing with all the different clinicians and how are they dealing with the medical stress that they're under under these uncertain times. So it's been very exciting, and it's been uh, we've had such a cross section of people. I think the listeners are going to find
1: something in uh great out of each one of them awesome man ted so so everybody listening you might be listening to the first episode you might be listening to the 10th takeover episode of this series so just make sure you you look back and see if you have missed anything but each one of them uh something that i feel ted you being so passionate about it is going to bring life to a lot of people as they hear it so ted again thanks for doing this and everybody enjoy the show
3: Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jonathan Ripp. Dr. Ripp serves in a dual role. He is Mount Sinai's Dean for Wellbeing and Resilience at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and is the Chief Wellness Officer for the Mount Sinai Health System. A graduate of Yale, undergraduate and medical school, Dr. Ripp has been passionate about clinician well-being and burnout prevention for many years. At the Heroes of Healthcare, we want to continue to focus on mental health and couldn't be happier to have Dr. Ripp join the show today. Welcome, Dr. Ripp.
0: Thanks so much. It's great to be here.
3: I'm excited to get into this because, you know, we talk a lot about COVID and what's going on in the marketplace and we're talking about vaccines and so much of it. And as we had one of your colleagues on Heather recently and talked about mental health, and I just don't think there's enough really kind of covered about that. Of course, we're all interested in the physiological aspects of COVID and all, but I love your background, your passion in terms of clinician well-being. And just looking forward to diving into that and learning a little bit more today. But before we jump in, if you don't mind, I always love to start with a little bit about your background, where you come from, grew up, and what led you into the wonderful world of medicine.
0: Sure. Yeah, great. Thanks for the opportunity. So yeah, well, to some extent, you know, it's funny because I, I was born at the hospital that I that I work at, which oh, is, wow. uh, so, yeah, so some people, you know, they talk about how long they've been at an institution, you know, they say they're lifers, <laughs> right? I really am. Yeah. So, you know, definitely back then it was just the Mount Sinai Hospital. Now it's a health system, but you know, it was, it's basically, you know, always been a presence in, in my life. I grew up in New York City on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and you know really had a very you know really great childhood i i loved growing up in new york city two older brothers and you know really became a city kid and didn't know much else outside my family was was very urban and and so you know both parents also from new york city so you know in terms of doing things that are not in an urban setting it, you know, i really didn't explore much until I guess adolescence, but you know, grew up always kind of had an interest in the sciences. So you know, perhaps not surprising that I that I ended up where I am. Just you know, like so many kids, as they're exploring disciplines, some resonate more than others. I actually had an opportunity in I think in my either 11th I think 11th grade between 11th and 12th grade to do sort of a summer I guess internship at Mount Sinai. So so again, the lifer theme there and spent that summer actually in in the in the operating rooms as sort of hanging out with the anesthesiologists and sort of functioning as like a, a sort of like a, a tech, I guess. And, you know, it really just, just was an incredible experience. As you can imagine, a 17-year-old, you know, watching surgeries and that sure. sort of thing. Yeah. So, you know, I, I definitely expanded my world a little bit after high school and I ended up going to Yale for college and, and medical school and really loved my time there. Got exposed to lots of interesting people and and disciplines and became pretty interested in in the humanities and writing. And so so that that resonated too. In fact I always tell academic physicians, you know, one of the one of the things you can really if you really want to help your career early on is, you know, develop your skills as a writer because it's really such a critical Skill set. Spent a lot of time in my college years and medical school years traveling, and developed a love for the for the outdoors. And that's still, I would say, is you know when we talk about self care and what what does it for you, what recharges you. Anytime I can get outdoors and and into nature, I find that that always kind of is the you know helps me press the the reset button. So even even though I still I sort of am in between in between worlds because I'm very much urban. And my parents are still in the same apartment I, I grew up in. Wow. And yeah, so, but ultimately came, you know, after medical school, sort of, you know, did, did a lot of this sort of soul searching and decision making that, that so many young doctors make and, and realized that I, you know, I wanted to be back in New York. And it really wasn't much of a, of a decision that at that point in my life. You know, if I was thinking that I wanted to be back here you know, I have a close family. So I wanted to be near my family. And and it really wasn't much of a decision at that point. I knew it was Mount Sinai that I wanted to come do my training in internal medicine. I'm still a practicing internist. I'm part of a home-based primary care program where I see uh, homebound patients in in their homes and make house calls to see them. But that's, that's kind of how things got started. I came as a resident back, you know, over 20 years ago now, completed my residency with the exception of one year that I I was not at Mount Sinai. I've been there ever since and really kind of just got, yeah. Interested in that, you know, I sort of tell people a little bit. I, I kind of picked a winner in a way because I I got interested in this subject of, at the time, I was interested in resident position well being because I, probably because I was so close to being a resident when I was a first year faculty. And I thought, kind of almost on a lark, you know, this seems like an interesting thing I can explore. Why don't I do a little survey study on that? And that was really the, the beginning of, of where I am now. My story is one of sort of slowly expanding, you know, scope and interest. And I just had the good fortune to pick an area to focus on and develop some expertise in that was uh, that kind of tracked some national momentum around the recognition of the importance of physician now clinician well-being and sort of all the implications thereof and so happy to talk more if you like but that's that's kind of my story
3: no well thanks for sharing that i would assume your parents have one of those highly coveted Rent controlled apartments that everybody would love to have if they've been there so long. <laughs> yeah, not
0: not not rent control, but they were living in the city at the time when everything was uh, amazingly. There was a glut of apartments, which people who live here now can't remember because rents are so high and and yeah. uh, and the costs of buying apartments are so high. But there was a time where they actually couldn't sell apartments in New York City. This was like the '70s, so they they kind of locked it in at the time and bought the apartment that that I grew up in.
3: Yeah, uh, that's that's great. Yeah. Being from New York myself, too, I'm familiar with all those settings and all those opportunities. So, yeah. So let's go in if you can. I think what's very unique about your background and your current role is you currently play a role as the chief wellness officer for the Mount Sinai health system, but yet you're also academic on the Icon School of Medicine for Mount Sinai. And so you really share these dual roles. Can you expand upon that and just how do they work together? How are they different? How does this come together? Because it's like it literally, have, I guess you have two jobs and, and how do they work together?
0: Yeah. So, you know, the the truth is, it's not really two jobs. And, you know, academic medical centers are are complex. And the relationships between schools of medicine and hospitals that are connected to them are, you know, if you've seen one, you've seen one, they're all a little bit different. And, you know, my, my job, I, I sit in the school of medicine, I report to the dean of the school of medicine. And so that that's kind of my initial charge is to address the needs of, of that community. And on the one hand, you might say, well, isn't that a little bit unfair that you're, you know, you're, you're addressing all this focus to, to a segment of, you know, the 40 plus thousand employees of the, of the health system and the learners in the health system. On the other hand, roles like mine are, are very new. I've only been at it for three years. And when I started, I was the fourth chief wellness officer in the country. Now there's probably 30 plus growing by the moment. So on the one hand, you, you can say, well, shouldn't there be one person that oversees all the needs of everybody in, in a health system? And there are some chief wellness officers that do have that role, that that purview. But it, it, certainly three years ago, it was a very expansive role that I was, that I, in terms of the, the scope of, of the population that 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 my responsibilities were, were directed towards. You know, there's sort of na- in name and in practice as it relates to school School and 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 hospital and we saw that in COVID more than ever. Once once COVID hit, it became clear as all of us sort of pivoted our our scope of work and directed everything towards dealing with this pandemic. That I would you know anything that I could offer was going to be for everybody. Prior to that, you know, I, I I never said no. There was a group that I interfaced with that was not strictly in the in the. Confines of the school-based population, but you know, I, I try to navigate that that line a little bit now. In in the wake of COVID, I would say you know, when we talk about silver linings from all this, you know, we 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 still are a relatively new health system. It's about six or seven years years old. So the pandemic really served to to make us tighter because we had we had to figure out how to serve the needs of the patients in all the the hospitals. And if one hospital got really stressed, we had to figure out how to unload them. And, And in so doing, there were lessons learned that could help the system function really more as an integrated system. So one hospital could offload the burdens of another if, if need be. And likewise, as we were thinking about a response to COVID by way of the well-being support of a, of a workforce in crisis, you know, clearly everything we were thinking about would be directed to everybody and that there wouldn't be one, you know, one group or another that we focused our, our concerns on.
3: And, you know, obviously when we had Dr. Knapp on our podcast too, and he talked about the stresses to the system, you know, back in the, what seems now like a long time ago, right. But as we're coming up on the year, thing year of this, yeah. but so let's back up a little bit in terms of, so three years ago, you know, you said I was one of three wellness officers. Now there's probably 40. What was some of the early findings, some of the early observations that said, Hey, there's a need here. We're seeing this, we're seeing that these are things that are causing us that we really Need to dedicate more time into the well-being, the wellness of the clinicians, as well as making sure that there's not burnout. What were some of the things that were becoming obvious that made you guys start to jump into this area?
0: Yeah, well, uh, you know, the, the way I would answer that is by saying that sort of there's been national recognition, you could even argue international recognition around the issue of clinician well-being employee well-being and sort of why sort of the consequences perhaps of not paying attention to that and just how significant that is. And that, that's that been a growing literature, you know, a growing body of evidence to support the importance of, of addressing the issue. You know, I just, when I first did that survey study that I spoke of when I was a you know first year faculty member over 15 years ago if you were to go search you know the medical sort of database you could find you know and you looked at resident physicians and burnout which was the area i was interested in there were probably 100 or maybe 150 papers total in the history of you know anything that's been written about the subject and it feels like you know we're seeing that many come out each month now and so the explosion of the of the evidence to support attention to the issue nationally i think is is a, in large part what has driven the attention at, at local settings and then every system or hospital that decides to commit in the way that we have you know probably also has some very real kind of individual you know some some reasons that are that are unique or individual to that to that system that's kind of prompting them to act what i would say is the the main things and that the literature showed you know, it's first of all that we've got a problem here, that it's, you know, the majority of clinicians experience burnout as measured by a well-established, you know, validated tool. So we know that in and of itself, there's sort of the moral imperative to address this issue because so so many are experiencing it. You know, there's also growing recognition that if you want to run a health system, I mean, it makes intuitive sense, but the data, you know, bore it out that if you want to run a health system, you know, your most important asset is your workforce. And if you don't take care of the workforce, you're, you're not going to be functioning optimally. And, and we see that by virtue of the link between measures of well-being and quality of care, medical errors, patient satisfaction, productivity of the workforce, turnover, people leaving their jobs. So there's a lot of evidence now that you know, actually it makes, it makes good business sense. It makes good you know, sense in terms of quality of care.
3: Sure. Quality care. And just as any as any business, any corporation wants to turnovers expensive, rehiring is expensive. You want to keep the continuity of care, you know, so having the, you know, minimizing burnout obviously has not only a real humanitarian aspect of it, you know, but it also has a very strong, just good business sense aspect of it. So it works on both levels.
0: Exactly. I, I usually talk about, you know, if you're making the case for it, I usually talk about the moral imperative. And the business case, there's yeah, actually, there's also, yeah, there's also growing regulatory, you know, burden, and uh, I wouldn't say burden, but a re- regulatory case, because now there's, because there's so much recognition, there's actually regulations, particularly around resident physicians. And last thing i'll say is that it, it's so that's kind of the you know what was the national milieu if you will that kind of was driving things forward at, at mount sinai I, because i just happened to develop an interest in this and then was able to you know in many ways i kind of was able to to help craft the the job uh, because i was i was slowly expanding the scope uh, of which i was advocating for to, to work at so i i was already in a role where I was overseeing the well-being, uh, the responsibilities around the well-being initiatives for all of the resident physicians, a group of about 2,500 at the Mount Sinai Health System. So that was already in place when a decision was made to kind of expand and, and you know, into my role. So in the case of Mount Sinai, there was already a, a large amount of attention to it prior to my coming on board. There's certainly other examples where, you know, there are large health systems that are hiring, recruiting, C, you know, chief wellness officers, CWOs right now. And what, what what I'm delighted to see is that some of those are, are doing it just because they they see, oh, we you know, there's 30 of them. These are our, you know, our competitors. These are, you know, really top notch medical centers. So we need to have we need to have one, too. This is this is how you run, you know, standard standard business.
3: Yeah, no, clearly. And I'm sure it even be, starts to become a recruiting attraction thing to know that the, the health system is investing back into the well-being of the clinicians that they're bringing into the system is important so much that they've got a chief wellness officer. So it makes, yeah. sense, on a, it makes sense on a lot of levels. To me, this might sound very basic, but what is a couple of the top contributors that you, are, that you see within a practicing clinician that's causing burnout? What causes them to start to burn out or not feel like they're working optimally?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, so burnout is one measure of, of well-being. It, it's commonly referenced and referred to because there, there's a well-established survey-based instrument. So you can have people fill out a survey that will, you know, sort of churn out whether a score and, and tell you whether they're burnt out or not. And so because that has been around for a long time, a lot of us use it. And so it's not necessarily the only way to, to measure well-being, but it's a way. And it's well studied and, and what we've seen is that it's it's very complex, as as you might imagine. The well-being of individual clinicians, of Individual groups, so you know the well-being of of a group of anesthesiologists and what drives that their well-being is going to be different than the group of pediatricians from you know a group of of obstetricians, right? So there's also kind of group drivers, mm-hmm. and then there's kind of larger system drivers, almost concentric circles starting with the individual and going out, and then and then quite frankly, what we what a lot of us struggle with is you know, what do you do when the major source of burnout is external to your institution? You know, what if it's attention to racial injustice? What if it's, you know, the events uh, that are happening in politics? And and sometimes that that comes back to us and we're sort of grappling with, you know, this is really outside of our control, outside of our sphere of influence. But I, I would think about the answer to your question in terms of sort of concentric circles. And it's important for chief wellness officers to remember that because you don't want to construct kind of a one-size-fits-all approach to alleviating burnout because right. you might help one group and not another. But you know, in terms of what what kind of drivers might sit in each of those circles, you know, we really focus on the systems like the healthcare system, not like the national healthcare system, but the drivers within an individual healthcare system. Those are likely to have the greatest impact and usually it fits into a couple of big buckets. One would be the efficiency of the workplace, uh, and the other would be the culture of the workplace. So, but in the end, it's, it's really, it's, it's how well you are enabled to do your work and whether you work in a place that you feel supports and cares about you. That, that's, that in my view is the upshot as it relates to kind of the the system factors. So if you're working somewhere where, you know, you're incredibly frustrated by all the clicks on your computer, you got to do just to order an X-ray or, you know, the, the inefficiencies of the workflows in your clinic or the, the number of notes you you need to the amount of time you're spending you know typing notes in the computer that's going to really impact your well-being in fact you might as we've seen you might take that home with you and spend hours at night finishing up and that's just no good and likewise you could work in the most efficient setting and have great workflows and you can have really uh, you know superb i.t and, and electronic health records but if you feel like like the people there don't value you don't respect you don't care about you don't take an interest in your career, then you're also likely to experience some burnout. So there needs to be attention to to both of those major levels. The other drivers are there's a number of other drivers that are kind of more individual, you know sort of what what's what your support network is like you know mm-hmm. what your home you know work work home issues are. Uh, you know if you're in the midst of COVID, for example, if you're a young parent and all of a sudden your childcare closes down and now you have to go to work and you have a four year old, you know, all of a sudden you don't have a lot of well-being and you might mm-hmm. be pretty burned out. And it's a very personal, you know, individual level kind of issue. So our job is actually to try to think about all of those things and, and construct an approach that addresses all that and not honestly get overwhelmed ourselves with trying to take on too much if we're going to be affected.
3: Yeah, your world, although telemedicine is increasing, I really can't work from home. And, you know, especially for a lot of clinicians. So as you said earlier, you've got the young child, school shut down. It's not like, okay, well, I'll just work from home. Right. A lot of people have that luxury. Right. You have to get somebody to take care of your child and you've got to get to work because you're hands on. So it does add a level right. of stress. Right. So when we just say, oh, it's great. Now we all have Zoom. We can all work from home. There's a lot of industries and businesses and healthcare being one of them. that says, I don't have that luxury. I can't do that.
0: Yeah, and and we we certainly saw that, and and it was a little bit different for everyone. So you know, kind of on a personal note, I have an 11 year old and a 13 year old, and my wife's a physician. She's an infectious disease physician, so she was her her specialty was was you know in high demand. Yeah, exactly. Is in high demand, and. You know, fortunately, as opposed to the case, I just, you know, scenario of a four year old, my 11 and 13 year olds, I mean, they pretty much once school went to to virtual platforms, it wasn't, it was definitely not ideal, but there were times when they were, they were plugged in. And we would go take care of COVID patients, you know, and they were kind of, you know, they kind of grew up quickly, you know, and actually my son speaks about this, how, you know, he learned how to fix himself, you know, lunch at home and, um, you know, what what to, and and actually look after his younger brother. So there's, you know, there's some really great lessons, but it was, it was stressful for sure. remains stressful and it's, it's very individualized. Yeah. So. Tell me
3: about what are some of the things I know you have, you know, you really look at this not only for the Mount Sinai health system and you're involved with a lot of things on a national level. So again, as you look over the kind of the years and and maybe you can give us a little bit of kind of what's happening on a national basis. What are what are organizations starting to look at? What are they trying to do? What are some of the preemptive measures they're trying to take? And then. Maybe layer in, how are you guys feeling in the midst of a surge, which you and I just m- m- said to each other is probably is bigger in a, in, for some people than it, or in, in different ways than it was in the spring. We're all kind of used to it. So we're a little numb about it, but obviously it's still stressing and taxing the system. So I know that was a yeah. very broad thing, but let's how's no, things happen nationally. What are some yeah. of the big initiatives going on? And then how is it relating to what your guys are up against right now?
0: Sure. Yeah. And just to make that question even more complex, you know, it's it's <laughs> what what are we doing? What's happening nationally? And then how do you think about that in the context of COVID and, and non-COVID? Right. And so right. it's like anybody, it's, it's really hard to, to think about anything right now that is not in, in the context of, of COVID. Although, even though right now, you know, we're, here we are in the middle of January, and, and perhaps folks will be listening to this, you know, in a few weeks, and the experience we're having now is, is likely gonna be different than it, than it is. Uh, Changes fast. Changes fast, yeah. And, you know, I, I, what I would say is so let, let me answer that by telling you how, what life was like at Mount Sinai in terms of our overall approach to address these issues before and after. And then speak to how that might have informed what other other groups are doing nationally, and then kind of what the way forward looks like uh, professionally. yeah. So you know before the pandemic, we were really trying to organize our approaches based on addressing those those drivers at the system level that, that I spoke of. So, you know, while at the same time having a comprehensive approach that incorporated ways to think about the individual and perhaps some of the individual, the issues that, that affect individuals, as well as a focus on on mental health for when when folks are really in, in crisis to make sure that that robust resources are there. So our approach before COVID was, as it relates to the efficiency of the workplace, we had developed sort of an organizational structure whereby we identified in partnership with departmental leaders and chairs of of departments, we identified individuals who would serve as sort of the well-being point person. We call them well-being champions. Within Departments. In keeping with that theme, that you know, the issues of one department are likely going to be very different from others, and and we worked with these individuals, these champions, meeting with them monthly and giving them a framework to build their kind of departmental approach to address well-being, keeping in mind the the kind of the, the spheres that that are likely to have greatest influence. So the cultural spheres and the efficiency of workplace spheres, and we provided them with some of the tools to. To measure that, we actually measured it and then gave them some data and and some know-how around the types of things that that have been studied and, and work. And we even created a, a granting mechanism to provide some pilot funds for groups to apply for. Uh, so not all of the, the champions got this, but some did because they put together really robust proposals through a grant mechanism to Come up with innovative ways to unload some of the the burdens around inefficient systems or ways of promoting culture of of support. And so that's in broad strokes, some you know very much what we were focused on beforehand. As I said, we did other things to enhance tools that an individual might avail themselves of either to build their own resilience or to to seek out mental health support if if needed.
3: But you use the word. So I just want to say, so essentially you were building the tools to enable people to self-administer, to self-do these programs. You can't, you know, the, the system is so large and it's so many people, 40,000, know, your group and ability to administer it that way. So you had to give in a sense, each of the areas in the groups a toolbox so that they could monitor it and administer it itself. That's that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, great, great. I, I, I'm really glad you made that clarifying point there because I, I often will tell a chief wellness officer who's a little, you know, I've only been at it three years, but someone who's newer than me, you know, I'll say you you can't possibly. This is a this is an oil tanker that's moving across the ocean, and you can't possibly steer that ship without, you know, without the the different, you know, trying to get the person that's running, you know, if there's four engines, you know, you got to try to partner with the folks that are operating those engines, whether it's, you know, initiatives that promote culture or initiatives that promote efficiency. So, so, and that's, that's part of what we enable our our champions to understand. and, And then we, we work closely. So it's not our job as chief wellness officers or my team to fix the electronic health record, for example, or to improve operational workflows or to do what's needed to change the culture ourselves specifically. We need to partner with those that can make it happen. And at any mm-hmm. large institution, there's going to be, there's going to be those, you know, those drivers, those, those, those folks running those engines that you can kind of steer this tanker in the direction towards, towards being. So that, that's an important point.
3: Yeah. And so yeah. just to take it even like a little more granular. So, so in a sense, your team's ability to say to your technology group, we've identified that the inefficiency in a certain system is actually a huge contributor to the stress of our physicians. Their feeling of inefficiency, their feelings of in, that they can't get to the patient care levels that we want is has been identified in this area so that they can address it, fix it, make it better. And having worked in big organizations, providing all the other factors all line up, it's in the budget, it's a, when we can get to it, all those things. But essentially, that's it, right? Identifying that, going to that partner group and saying, this is an area that you can really help us out at.
0: That's exactly right. So you know, my team we meet monthly with the IT leads, and we meet monthly with the operational leads, and and so that's the work of the chief wellness officers to make sure that all those groups understand how what they do influence the well-being of the workforce. And then we work on the on the you know sort of smaller level, which is still can be very large, but at the departmental level. So the, through the data we collect, we might say, oh, these four departments have the highest burden of time spent on the electronic health record or the highest burden of messages that they deal with. And so we need to really think about those groups. We need, we need to shine a spotlight on those groups, encourage those groups to come up with novel ways and maybe apply for the grants and, you know, use the data that we've collected to make the case for it. So that that's kind of been our model and, and our approach before COVID. So if you like, I can speak to how we pivoted once. COVID. Yeah, let's, let's
3: in. do that. You know, I mean, I'm sitting here, I got like 15 more questions that I want to ask you and I, but the, the podcast doesn't go for two hours. So I recognize yeah. that we don't have the time. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the pivot in terms of the stresses that COVID did, some of the things that you did. And then uh, yeah. I'd love for us to just, you know, maybe finish off on kind of what do you the see national. as the mental health challenges that are going to come out of this you know we've had several conversations with some other clinicians and obviously there's a lot of expectation that for lack of a better term PTSD or the mental stress that's going to come out of COVID will be big so let's talk about as you said the pivot coming into COVID and we'll we'll close out with just talking more about what's coming down the road.
0: Sure, sure. Yeah. So we recognized, you know, in early March that what we were going to see something, something really serious, you know, it, it became clear, like, like it has to all of us. And when it became clear to us, we, like everybody doing everything, they realized it, we have to put whatever we were doing on pause and, and, and pivot towards addressing COVID. And in our case, that was, you know, how do we address the emotional well-being of a workforce in crisis. I think by virtue of, of my being in in the role that I that I'm in and I know I've heard this from other chief wellness officers, we were poised to be able to, you know, make make that pivot and do something meaningful quickly because we had the infrastructure in place. Uh, another case to be made is that, you know, uh, having having folks like us involved helps you respond in crisis. So we we realized that the that the stressors had changed a bit, so some of the things that I spoke to you about earlier about the drivers of well-being were quite different, not surprisingly, in the midst of a crisis. We didn't, you know, prior to COVID spend much time thinking about, you know, how people are going to, you know, get to work, you know, and, you know, transportation to work or just personal safety. That wasn't really an issue because quite frankly, everyone, you know, took that for granted by, by way of, you know, what risks you might experience at work, right? So issues around how do I get my PPE and and how do I get to work safely? Where am I going to get my next meal? Basic needs. Yeah. Um, became an area that we needed to support. So that was one big area that we focused on and try to enhance what could be offered to people. And and obviously the system did a lot of this, but so we did a lot of the packaging and, and pushing out of the information, which is a critically important role of ours is sort of creating coherence and, and good messaging around resources, perhaps that already exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basic needs was a big part of it. Uncertainty had settled in, in that, in that spring surge, it remains a huge source of anxiety, um, yeah. you know, just, just just, you know, dealing with who knows what's who knows, going, right right. <laughs> right. And certainly in the spring, you know, I think some of that's been alleviated because we, we know that the PPE works, we know that patient, you know, how to take care of patients. We know that we can handle a surge, but we didn't know any of that back in the spring. And so just, you know, and, and, folks were getting redeployed. Would they be prepared? Would they be supported now? You know, just the last week I was redeployed to the COVID units and, and I felt much more, you know, sort of uh, support. Well, I, I felt supported because I knew that, that, you know, how, how it would be organized. We had an experience with it. Well, so
3: anything in life, right. The first time you do it, you're so anxious about it. And then the next, it's, yeah. it's, it is the unknown. It's the uncertainty, as you said, That's and right. then the next That's time, right. the first time you fly on an airplane, you're a little anxious about it. The next time you get on, you're like, Yeah, oh, this is no big deal,
0: but you, you have to okay. go through it. Yeah, the fear of the unknown, you know, that, that's emerged. And I mean, I, you know, I could have anticipated that would have been a problem, but it, it really, it really has emerged as a, as a huge source of anxiety. So, you know, when uncertainty is is the cause of, of stress, then information is the source of, of relief, right? So we uh, put a lot of efforts and energies into pushing out information, both mm-hmm. to you know identify what the questions people had were so that the system, you know, to help the system and their communications efforts. And, you know, we were one, one element in that, obviously, there there's a, a huge communications effort underway, but also providing supportive, authentic, regular communications too is, is something that we we could provide our, our expertise in. So that was another big area. And then of course, what you spoke of is the psychosocial mental health support aspects. You know, in the midst of crisis, a lot of people kind of hunker down and they don't process or have a desire to address their psychosocial needs. And, and there's some suggestion that it actually may not be helpful or even detrimental to do it in the moment that you kind of need to do it at a, at a little bit afterwards when people can take a breath and process. So we needed to make sure, yeah, we needed to make sure that all those resources were in place. And we did, we uh, we kind of created coherence around, we figured out everything that could be offered already and then ramped up again with partners, social workers and department of psychiatry and spiritual care and so forth. We kind of put together a, a menu of, of resources. We have, we're fortunate to have a lot of resources, including a new center for stress, resilience, and personal growth dedicated to the mental health needs of our workforce now and, and beyond the crisis. So we have a lot of resources, but we, you know, what my, my team did was identify the needs, identify what resources we had, what gaps we needed to plug, and then how to package it all and deliver it. I'd like to think that in answer to your other question about how that helps nationally, I think we were early on... To experience all this, so we were able to put together our COVID-19 pandemic well-being toolkit, which we, we pushed out and made available open access uh, to other institutions, which I'd like to think hopefully they you know could learn from our experience. I'm happy to finish with sort of what the way forward, what we might
2: expect.
3: Let's do that. And I want to also maybe get the information from you and we'll get it on the website for some of the listeners. If somebody hears and says we'd love to see that package, that toolkit that you guys have you know great sharing out there, sure. you know, we, I'd love to make that available so that they can get that Absolutely. link. We'll get, we'll follow up with you on that after. Yeah. So let's talk about the, let's talk about the way forward.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that we've done, you know, fortunately our, our Dean, who's an expert at, uh, Dean Charney, Dennis Charney is an expert in resilience. He recognized early on that this experience was going to have a significant impact and enabled us to do some, some real time research, which, which we've done a lot of. And the, the upshot is that, you know, we looked at a sample of the 40 plus thousand employees of Mount Sinai Health System through a survey-based instrument that we developed, we sampled about six thousand frontline healthcare workers—doctors, nurses, social workers, what have you—got a, a response of, of a little over fifty percent. So three thousand plus surveys completed, which we, I, I you know, we, we basically analyzed and found that that thirty-nine percent of that workforce uh, who answered the survey met criteria for symptoms, not a diagnosis, but symptoms of depression, anxiety or PTSD we just closed our second round of that survey so we'll have a sense of how this is, is continuing, but I'm sure our experience is mirrored in, in, in other places. So clearly this is having a, a, a dramatic impact on our, on our workforce. And we do need to, to, to kind of make sure we're sharing best practices. I do that through the collaborative, that I co-chair called CHARM, the collaborative for healing and renewal in medicine. We have a network of chief wellness officers, those 30 some odd chief wellness officers I spoke of. We meet monthly and, and sort of share ideas and are learning That's from each great. other, but the experience That's awesome. Yeah, the experience. Yeah, the experience we have is is you know at Matsana is not unique, and so I, I do think if anything, this is it's shown us it's it's validated our 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 roles uh, by by virtue of of being able to to make a difference in a time of of crisis. And uh, you know, I, I think that there's clearly we've identified that the the burden is real in terms of the impacts, and so it means that we need to partner with our mental health colleagues and continue to push forth and enable our, our folks to to be efficient at work to be in a culture that they feel cared for, because it's, it's clearly uh, uh, something that we're going to be contending with for, for some time.
3: Yeah, no. I, and I love that. And, th- and 3000 re- survey, meaningful data. That's awesome. You know, yeah. you know, sometimes yeah. you put these surveys out and you get a couple hundred and that gives you a good indicator, but over 3000 returns, but unfortunately at yeah, 39%, it's, it's showing itself. So obviously we're going to need to continue to do that. So it makes me believe that what I'd like to do is reserve maybe in the next six months, I'd love to come back to you and maybe we can do this again. Cause I'd love to hear what's, sure. con- what you guys are continuing to see and keep following on. I'm a big mental health advocate. I don't think, uh, I I like the way it's it's come. We're more open to talking about it. We recognize it. The stigma is going around get, getting better. I wouldn't say we're there yet, but it's getting better. And if I probably just would summarize kind of the two things that I really, you know, I obviously heard, you know, takeaway is from our conversations, information and communication to remove uncertainty is really so critical. You just have to continue to try to get that data out there. And we kind of have a expression at our, where I work, where we say seven times, seven ways in order to communicate it, you got to say it seven times in seven different ways. And then they start to get it right. You you can't just uh, put an email out once and assume that they're going to get it. So we say seven times, seven ways. So that's That's a big piece to remove that uncertainty. And I love the part about the concentric circles. It's not just a one-size fits all, and you have to start with, as you said, with the small part and then keep working out and find out what are the nuances to each. So those were two really neat takeaways that 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 I have. So Dr. Rip, as you know, as we're wrapping up this episode, I always like to end asking each of our guests who their hero was, who was somebody who had a big impact in your life
0: whether it be current or in the past? Thanks for that question. So who is my hero? Well, that's a tough one. I can imagine so many people that might fit the bill, so many role models and mentors that I look up to and have influenced me along the way. But I guess if I were to really ask myself, who is my hero and think about someone heroic, I'd probably choose someone that, you know, perhaps it might be a little more trite to go with a family member, but I would say that my grandmother really is uh, my hero. Her story is one in which she fled from Europe during wartime in the beginning of the Second World War, had the wherewithal to pick up her family, travel through dangerous areas and make her way to the United States. I I can only imagine what kind of fear and challenges and stress she was going through. And and then all that she faced in a new world, establishing herself and her family here in in New York, where, where I am now. I'd like to think that that I I learned from her example. And, you know, this this really resonates at a time like this one where I had uh, to come in and take care of, of patients with, with COVID. And obviously, you know, it's a totally different type of example. But thinking through that, you know, the, the fear, the real anxiety that, that myself and others uh, no doubt experience when entering rooms of patients that are sick, knowing how many people have died from this, that, you know, we just sort of have to do it. And I guess she you know taught me that lesson that she just she had to do what she what she did and and of course uh, i wouldn't be here had she not so yeah my, my grandmother thanks so much again for your time I know that this is
3: this is a busy time for everybody, especially in systems like yourself. And we appreciate you being part of this podcast, and we look forward to getting feedback. And most importantly, I look forward to coming back to you down the road and let's get a let's touch base again and see and see how things are going and and what are you guys continuing to learn to share to the listeners. It would be great.
0: Thanks so much. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I really appreciate the chance to speak with you, and look forward to doing it again. We'll take you up on that